You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I've already apologized to a few people this morning. And it went something like this. I apologize ahead of time for the sermon that should be three parts that I'm going to do in 45 minutes. So I extend the same to you. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Question, do you have a biblical worldview? Do you have a biblical worldview? Do you understand that life and reality, uh, do you understand life and reality in light of God's word? Are your values and beliefs and priorities and principles shaped by the reality that God is and that God is holy and that he is your creator and that he has sent his son to die for you and that he has now called us to live for his glory? Does all of that truth form and shape how you view life in the world? It's essential that you and I have a biblical worldview because, as we said last week, we are in a spiritual battle. Uh, why is it important that we have a biblical worldview? As we said last week, we're in a spiritual battle. And what we're going to see today is that spiritual battle which Satan stands behind generally plays out in the arena of ideas, in the arena of ideas, because the culture influenced by Satan is constantly on the offensive, constantly pushing godless philosophies and godless ideas upon us. The fact is Christianity, however, offers a unifying, all-encompassing, comprehensive, cohesive, coherent worldview, which can answer all the serious questions about life, and you and I need to be thoroughly familiar with that worldview. Uh, The Christian worldview answers questions of meaning and purpose and identity, about truth, about human nature, and about how to relate to one another. But we often don't live as if that is the case. Instead, it seems that many, even those who call themselves Christians, are guilty of cobbling together their own worldview, their own way of seeing life, really from a variety of Sources. Sometimes that's not a conscious decision. Uh, however, there are those who go through life exposed to all kinds of different attitudes or all kinds of different opinions, and they sim- simply kind of take from here and take from there, kind of like a person walking through the beach and just grabbing up a stone here and grabbing up a stone there and putting them in their, in their bag. Sometimes that's how we form a worldview just taking ideas from this philosophy and that philosophy and maybe from this politician and from that uh, philosopher, and uh, we just put together our own worldview shaped by our own uh, ideas or by ideas that we feel are attractive, whether consciously or unconsciously. We pick up ideas and add them to our worldview bag without any concern as to whether or not they're coherent or compatible internally consistent or even tested by reality or whether or not they're biblically sound. There seems to be no unifying standard by which some determine what they will accept as truth and what they will filter out as error. They have no standard by which they validate or invalidate truth claims or assess the moral judgments that they encounter. Consequently, again, that type of worldview is not an internally consistent set of values. Truth claims that are more like a patchwork quilt of ideas that have been sewn together and somewhat random and vaguely resembling some sort of pattern instead of being shaped by Scripture. So what's the problem with that? Aren't we all free to shape our own worldview as we please, based upon our own personal views and beliefs? Aren't we all just moral, independent moral agents who have the freedom to determine uh, how we would like to view and interpret the world? 
Aren't we free to pick and choose our ideas from the popular notions of the day? Well, there's a couple problems with that. First of all, because of the nature of truth. We'll get to Romans 1 in a second. Because of the nature of truth. Understand there are no orphan ideas. We must recognize that when we hear teachers and influencers and celebrities and media, uh, friends and even co-workers and politicians and religious leaders, when they make truth claims, those viewpoints flow from some undergirding philosophy, some particular understanding of nature and truth. There's some philosophy which undergirds those ideas. There's some parent philosophy that spawns those uh, ideas. There are no orphan ideas. Those thoughts and conclusions began with some presuppositions regarding the nature of truth and the purpose of man and the existence or non-existence of God. Every statement about morality and human nature and purpose and race and class and gender and ethnicity and sexual identity and even economics flows in some way from a foundational philosophy which dictates how one arrives at those truths. So there are no orphan ideas whether it's materialism or empiricism or rationalism or skepticism or relativism or postmodernism or any other ism, each has a peculiar estimation of the truth and how it can be known. We might not deal with those philosophies head on, but every single day as you encounter truth claims, you are dealing with the offspring of such philosophies. As we debate racial issues, are you aware that some of today's dominant thinking is saturated in postmodernism? which believes that there are no absolute truths, no truths which transcend all people, and so uh, all truth is simply a social construct, which means that every racial community has its own truth, and you dare not take your truth and seek to impose it upon uh, that other community who has their own truth. Do you understand that as we debate gender issues, that the concept of gender fluidity is rooted in a school of thinking which believes there is no fixed human nature? Because there's no God who has created man in his image. Consequently, the nature of man is continually in flux. And if the nature of man is continually in flux, well, then gender is also continually in flux, and you can identify as whatever you wish. The same is true as we debate economics and as we debate things like political correctness and so on. No idea is an orphan. Trace it back to its logical beginning, and you'll find a parent philosophy which has defined that truth and dictated how truth can be found. Our job as Christians is to filter that out through the lens of Scripture. If no idea is an orphan, but is attached somehow to an underlying philosophy, then how dangerous is it for you and I to walk through life, gathering up various beliefs and opinions and attitudes and values and just throwing them into our worldview bag? Many of the ideas you and I encounter in our day-to-day lives are simply the practical outworkings of philosophies which have actually sought to replace God, redefine truth, and have reduced the value of man. In the best case scenario, if we take that approach to worldview building, we will be logically inconsistent in our worldview. That is, in grabbing what we think is the best from competing philosophies and worldviews, we may be oblivious to the fact that those worldviews are actually in contradiction to one another, directly opposed to one another, logically incoherent, or even self-refuting. In the worst-case scenario, however, we will find our thinking shaped by godless philosophies, which are in direct attack against God. Whereas we think we may be operating independently, erecting a personal worldview. Well, that's just how I feel. This is what I think. Or our own framework through which to understand life. We're actually simply always borrowing from some other philosophy. Philosophies which, if we knew their starting premises or their logical ends, we might recognize as being unbiblical or even absurd. 
So we must recognize that because of the nature of truth, there are no orphan ideas, and so we cannot just cobble together own worldview by things that seem reasonable to us. But we also must recognize that because of the nature of man, there are no orphan human beings. Look in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. This is very interesting because the Apostle Paul is taking the truth of Scripture and he's preaching it and bringing it to bear upon a pagan culture. In Acts chapter 17, verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so the men of Athens worshiped all sorts of gods. And just in case they missed one, they actually had an altar that said, To the unknown God, to whomever we've missed. And Paul says, Okay, well, I'm going to declare that God to you. But this is what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. What Paul is doing is he's saying, I am bringing a message to you of the God, the creator God, the transcendent God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. And what he's doing is saying, there is an objective truth, there is an authoritative truth, there is a transcendent reality, and I am going to bring it to bear upon you. Far from some postmodern notion of you have your truth and I have my truth and your truth is okay and my truth is okay and can't we all just coexist? And that's what my bumper sticker says. Far from that, he says, no, I'm going to bring the truth of the Creator God to bear upon you and your culture. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives us all mankind, uh, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. This is a universal truth he's sharing here. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And what Paul is saying there is even your own poets have have uh, touched upon this truth. Because this is a universal reality. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's saying there are times past where many have concocted their own ideas of God out of their own imaginations. They had their truth and they had their truth. And he says, but now the time has come to recognize that there is one God. He's a creator of all and we are all his offspring. And God has commanded that all men repent of any other ideas. Why? Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The reality of Christ's incarnation, his perfect life, his death and his resurrection commands that all men and all women acknowledge that truth and bow the knee before Jesus Christ. Paul's point, even to the pagans at Athens, was that all human beings are created by God. He has the right to dictate what is true and what is not because he is creator. He determines how he is to be worshipped and how he is not to be worshipped. Because we are all his offspring, he determines how we should behave and how we should not. And beyond that, he's appointed a day where we will face judgments based upon how we respond to those truths. And so, as Christians, we have no business 
cherry-picking from the worldviews of the day. We have an obligation to recognize the parent philosophies that birthed those popular ideas. We must contrast and compare those to a fully formed biblical worldview and reject all that contradicts truth as God has defined it. We do this in recognition that God is the creator. He is the transcendent God. And from him, from him flows transcendent authoritative truth. There is a cohesive meta-narrative that holds everything together in contrast to the postmodernism of our day. Not only this, but like Paul, we understand the legitimacy and obligation to even confront our pagan society with a divine worldview because it is universally true. Understanding the nature of truth and understanding the nature of our creation, we set out with a determination to learn and embrace and live by and share a biblical worldview. Now, turn in your Bibles to Romans 1. And for the remainder of our time this morning, we're going to look at Romans 1 and consider the ultimate source of those worldviews which compete against a biblical worldview. The ultimate source of secular humanistic thinking, which is continually challenging divine truth. We're going to learn the basic foundation for every competing worldview. And we're going to glean confidence in detecting and rejecting and offering a replacement to those worldviews. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 16. Paul, again, writing to a Gentile city, coming from a background of pagan religion and polytheism. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men in receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And here we have God's damning assessment of mankind. Man has rejected God and suppressed the evidence of his existence so that they could form their own worldview. 
They replaced God with something in the natural order, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Why? In order to free himself so that he can live in service, not of God, but in service of his own passions. All the while claiming to have been broken free from foolishness and having been enlightened, having become wise. In reality, God says, claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools. They became fools. They're self-worshippers who have uh, brought the wrath of God upon themselves. And so here we find a pattern or a formula which seems to undergird every secular worldview. Each begins with, one, a rejection of God. A rejection of God then leads to a suppression of truth because if there is no God, there is no transcendent authoritative truth which flows from God. And so a rejection of truth, uh, a rejection of God, a suppression of truth, and then a proposed replacement for God because whether we want to admit it or not, we all live ultimately with some supreme idea uh, which governs how we live life. A rejection of God, a suppression of the truth, a proposed replacement for God. We'll explain that a little bit later if we have time. And then a debasement of mind which justifies the indulgence of passions. And then a devaluing of man which leads to dishonorable behavior. And finally, all of this leads to the incursion of God's wrath. That's the pattern that Romans 1 lays out for us. And so God says, as a result of this, my wrath will come upon unrighteousness. How, I mean, that sounds severe. How can we understand the justification for God's wrath being poured out upon the culture that has rejected him? Well, verse 18 of Romans 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But then he gives reasons why is legitimate for his wrath to be poured out upon such a people. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Well, God's wrath can be poured out upon such a people because we've all been given clear evidence of God's existence as creator so that we are all without excuse. So for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how has God shown to all mankind the reality of his existence? Well, it continues. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. In what way? Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God is saying simply by virtue of creation, simply by the reality that we exist and that all of the creative order all around us is, is enough to hold man accountable or culpable for the rejection of God. All of creation just screams out, God is, and God is creator, and God is wise. Think for a moment about the uniqueness of creation, the uniqueness of our solar system, the uniqueness of our planet. Complex life requires liquid water. The existence of water requires our planet to orbit the sun at a distance neither too far or too close. And we exist in the perfect distance. To sustain advanced life, the planet must orbit a star which is highly stable with little variation of brightness. And so it is with our sun. To support life, a planet must orbit the sun within uh, a zone which is habitable. Not too close, not too far away. We've already said that. In order to protect life, a solar system must be arranged like ours with rocky planets closest to the sun and gas giants further away. The strong gravitational pull of these planets provide protection against asteroid collision, for instance, and such is the case with our solar system. 
In order to remain habitable, a solar system must feature planets with stable orbits. A large planet like Jupiter migrating nearer or further from Earth would disrupt its orbit and push it out of the uh, habitable zone. A habitable habitable planet must be about the size of Earth. A planet too small can't hold much of an atmosphere, making surface temperatures low. A planet too large would feature an atmosphere too thick. In order to maintain a low daily variation in temperature, a planet must have the right speed of rotation. In order to avoid extreme seasonal variations in climate, the axis of a planet must have just the right tilt, not too large, not too small. It's also essential that a life-sustaining planet have a large satellite like the moon, which causes the ocean tides and plate tectonics. A planet of the right size is needed in order to maintain its atmosphere, uh, the atmosphere protecting against UV sunlight. A proper chemical makeup of the atmosphere is essential to maintain life. Nitrogen and carbon dioxide must be of the perfect ratio. The presence of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is dependent upon volcanoes and geysers on the planet, uh, of which uh, the Earth has just the right amount. We could go on and on and on. The orbit of the planet, the presence and strength of magnetic fields, protective, life-sustaining atmosphere, the perfect force of gravity. Uh, What's the conclusion? Our planet and solar system is fine-tuned, expertly designed to sustain life. The fact that our solar system and planet are perfectly designed for life is a dilemma, oftentimes called the Goldilocks dilemma, which mankind must grapple with. If there is no creator, no intelligent design, then how did it come to be? Even the most committed naturalist has to blush at the idea that all of this happened by random chance. As stated earlier, whether we are gazing into space or peering through a microscope, all of creation is awe-inspiring. Why? Because that's how God designed it to be. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. God made creation to be an evangelist, screaming and crying out, God exists, He is Creator. All of creation proclaims that there's a Creator who's absolutely powerful and infinitely wise. And this evidence is laid bare in front of us, in front of all mankind. We're literally bombarded with undeniable evidence of the existence of an intelligent creator every single day, every time you open your eyes, every time we take a breath. It's obvious to any honest observer. Even those who would claim to believe that there's no intelligent creator instinctively look to nature, expecting purpose and design. Have you noticed this? Are you a fan of nature documentaries? Uh, you look at an insect, an insect and you look and, and see that it has some type of feature. And scientists can always ask the question, why? What purpose does that play? We instinctively look to the created order with the assumption that all design has some intended purpose. The very fact that we can have this confidence stems from the reality that everything is made by an intelligent creator. So we watch sharks swim and birds soar and learn the secrets of aerodynamics and flight. We watch dragonflies carry as much as 15 times their weight, and and we learn the secrets of airflow and lift. We watch a small gecko walk up a wall and across the ceiling and learn how to make superior adhesives. We spend millions of dollars and produce giant systems in order to copy the navigational systems that come standard on birds. We learn from the study of butterfly wings how to produce vibrant cell phone screens which perform in any lighting condition. We watch birds and beavers and wasps weave and tunnel and build, and then we mimic their expertise and structural strength. We study owls, watching them silently soar through the air at slow speeds and learn how to produce aircraft requiring shorter runways and producing far less sound. 
We saved countless lives because we've studied mosquitoes, wasps, and bees, and have successfully copied their natural hypodermic needles. We instinctively look to creation to say that uh, there is design and there is purpose and it's superior. And we mimic our creations after what we see in the world. So we instinctively know that there's superior technology and design found in creation. Since the beginning, we've sat as students at the feet of nature, seeking to mimic what we deserve. But what the secular worldview calls Mother Nature, we recognize as a product of the Creator God. We don't, however, need to gaze to the heavens or appear through a microscope to witness the clear evidence of God's existence in his nature. We can look no further than our own nature and existence. As God's creation, we are made in his image. We're not the highest form within the animal kingdom. We are different altogether. We are self-aware. We are self-aware beings who possess a mind and a consciousness. We're created as intelligent persons to reflect the creative personhood of God. However... In our spiritual rebellion, instead of standing in awe of all of this and the intelligence behind it, we use our own inventions inspired by his creation as proof that we are intellectually superior and have no need of God. We use the rational mind which he has given us, created uh, to model his own, to reason him out of existence, concocting godless philosophies which seek to explain life without him. But try as we might, we cannot escape the fact that we have been served with clear evidence of his existence. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made, so they are without excuse. God has made himself known. First, through that general revelation, all men have been been given clear revelation. Men can, through observation of the physical realm, draw conclusions about the existence and nature of the invisible God, the fact that he is eternal, the fact that he is powerful, the fact that he is uh, divine and wise. Again, so powerful is that evidence that it renders all men culpable. So we have been given clear evidence of God's nature and existence as creator. And so this helps us understand why God can say that rebellion then results in his wrath being poured out. Listen, you are without excuse. Next of all, we understand that God's wrath is justified against those who form a godless worldview because all men suppress the knowledge of God as given through general revelation. The revelation is there. Mankind in his sinfulness then seeks to cover it up. Evidence of God's nature and existence has been given to every generation. Now look in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's there. You can't get rid of it. And so we simply seek to suppress it. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not, ought not to be done. This is like kind of like a, a criminal. There's some witness to his crime. And so the criminal takes the witness and just kind of suffocates him, cover him up, put a bag over his head, lock him in a closet, don't let anybody see him or hear from him, take the witness and just hide him. That's mankind suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Man in his spiritual rejection of deity seeks to suppress the truth of God as seen in creation. 
And so he takes the most obvious evidence of God's existence and suppresses it through convoluted explanations as to how everything came to be. Materialistic theories regarding the origin of the universe and the appearance of life abound. They differ in detail, sure, but they all agree in their foundation, foundational presuppositions. God does not exist. Matter is king. Therefore, man is free to live as he desires. The clear evidence that God exists as an intelligent creator is suppressed. Ultimately, why? Because mankind can't accept a supernatural explanation. Well, that's not the main reason. Because we're so rationalistic that we can't accept the miraculous? Well, no, that's not the ultimate reason. Ultimately, according to verse 8, the truth of the reality of God is suppressed because of our devotion to unrighteousness. Pretty basic. Because of our determination to live as free agents. Because we are determined to be wholly autonomous without the requirement to answer to any higher being. In our sin, we refuse to acknowledge God. We refuse to give thanks to God. We refuse to honor God. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, that is, this is a willful blindness. This is a willful blindness. This is a claim of ignorance, but it doesn't fly. God's revelation of his nature and existence through creation is enough to say they knew God. No amount of intellectual obfuscation or hardening of conscience or willful blindness can excuse mankind for denying God. What is the consequence of man's suppression of the truth? Again, verse 21, not only does it bring about the wrath of God, but there are natural consequences that play out, which happens anytime we violate God's design. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Futile and foolish having rejected genuine truth and the reality of God and the clear evidence that he has created, they are left only with their own inferior beliefs and philosophies. They have, through their atheistic assumptions, determined that they can never arrive at truth. By founding their theories upon the notion that God, the spiritual, and the miraculous do not exist, they have destined themselves to a fate of never, ever coming or arriving at genuine truth. Instead of turning to the glorious creator of the universe, they have turned inward. Consequently, they have become futile, vain, worthless in their thinking, their foolish hearts being darkened. Ephesians 4.18 parallels this. It says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. And there we see the ultimate source, hardness of heart, rebellion against God. So, we have all been given clear evidence of God's nature and existence as creator. That's number one. Number two, all men suppress the knowledge of God as given through general revelation. And number three, what Paul tells us in dissecting these secular, godless worldviews is that all men find God's substitutes in creation. Look in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the disordering of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. They claim to be wise. A man rejects God suppressing the truth, suppressing the truth of his existence as seen in creation. 
And they do so in the name of what? Human wisdom. Enlightenment. They claim that their atheism is the product of a superior knowledge. They assert that they've arrived at their conclusions through intellectual rigor. Theism is for the uneducated, the gullible, the small-minded. Genuine knowledge is confined to the world of matter and naturalism. To invoke the spiritual, according to the culture, the supernatural or the miraculous, is to expose your ignorance. Is that not the posture of our culture? But what does God say? Professing themselves to be wise, they've become fools. The fact is, God has made the universe discoverable and knowable. God has gifted mankind with the faculties to understand the creation all around us. The very fact that He has made creation and then made us to be able to engage with and understand creation is absolutely amazing. God has designed man for this world and this world for man. It naturally follows then that man applies his intellect and reason to discovering how the world works, and he makes wonderful discoveries. But man in his pride looks at his discoveries as evidence that he doesn't need God. Whether it be in the field of astronomy as we confirm theories about black holes or biology as we crack the DNA code which God has programmed in all of life, we have been made to discover, to understand, to see how God put it all together. But that should lead us not to reject God, but to stand in awe of God. Every new scientific discovery, every new species that's discovered should cause us to stand in awe of the Creator, but we do the opposite. What should lead mankind to stand in awe of God is the wise Creator actually leads them to reject Him. And again, the Bible says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Psalm 14, David says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. And interesting there that Paul, again, associates atheism with immorality. There's an incentive for atheism, which is that if there is no God, we can indulge ourselves. So the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, so I will live as if there is no God. What does that look like? Corruption, abominable deeds, and there's none who does good. So man, through wisdom, has refused to acknowledge God and consequently has proven themselves to be fools. Some of the most revered human philosophies are nothing more than the foolish nonsense wrapped up in intellectual garb. For instance, serious thinkers have proposed that living organisms replete with vast amounts of information coded into their DNA just spontaneously sprung from non-living matter. It defies logic and it defies common sense. Some other serious philosophers have actually suggested the possibility that the external world does not actually exist. We're simply sensory beings being fed an endless string of sensations that we interpret as the physical realm. Others still suggest that since all of the universe can be reduced to material substance, and since human consciousness cannot be explained materially, that human beings are not really conscious. We're in a simulation. Have you heard that? Common sense would suggest that if you're committed to a philosophy of radical materialism as a worldview and are confronted with the fact that your worldview cannot explain human consciousness, then maybe you should reassess your worldview. But that's not what happens. Instead, the conclusion seems to be to question human consciousness. Well, that's a devotion to a worldview, despite its absurdity. Apparently, we are to ignore the fact that it takes a conscious human to make an argument against human consciousness. The fact is, Christianity was born at a time when the culture was steeped in Greek philosophy. Scientific claims and philosophical musings have always been around. Man has always tended towards a rejection of God 
and the suppression of his truth, and have always sought God replacements from within creation. And man has always done so under the guise of wisdom. It was the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers who prompted Paul to speak in Athens when he said, in Acts 17, verse 21, says, Now all, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They traded in speculation and philosophy, and Christianity was always there, was always up to the task to confront them. Human nature has remained the same from the beginning. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. 1 Corinthians one twenty one says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. And I love this. And as much as apologetics are needed, as much as we ought to have some wisdom and understanding when it comes to how to defend the faith, absolutely. It says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that while the world is so caught up in his own wisdom and his own intellect, God chose to confront the world how? by the foolishness of the cross. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense from a worldly perspective. It seems quite foolish. God saves the world through a crucified Messiah, and it confounds human wisdom so that man uh, puffed up in his own pride then is likely to reject the gospel, again, on the basis of their own wisdom. That's not to say there are not great thinkers, again, among secular scientists and philosophers, but it is to say that every area of which they arrive at genuine truth, they're simply discovering the way in which God has designed creation in the created order. They're simply figuring out how God put it all together. All of us, anyone who does science, are simply reverse engineers of, of, of sort. Everywhere they discover genuine knowledge, they're simply discovering, again, uh, God's truth. Well, what accompanies this type of foolishness? Look at verse 23. He says that in their foolishness, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. With the rejection of God always comes a stunning exchange. Man and his knowledge so-called trades the glory of the immortal God for some man-made idol. The consequence is that they reject wisdom. Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of the human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel, feet, but they do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Mankind at heart are naturally idolaters, and we become like the idols that we make. Habakkuk 2.18 says, What prophet is an idol when his maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. And you say, but we don't make idols in our day. Maybe not, but we still remain guilty of idolatry. The idols of the nations are really just vessels through which mankind could worship himself. Romans 1.25, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. 
They would fashion an idol and endow it with some aspect of human nature, a God of war, a God of love, a God of beauty, a God of fertility, a God of jealousy, a God of greed, a God of hatred. And then they would worship. And in, in so doing, they're really just worshiping themselves. Have we been so enlightened that we're freed from idolatry? Not at all. We simply become more adept at couching idol worship as human wisdom and philosophy. Rejecting God as the ultimate reality is always followed by the pursuit of a God replacement, the loss of human value, and the inability to attain genuine wisdom. So, God is the ultimate source of meaning, truth, and purpose. There's no making sense of creation without Him. When God is rejected, so too is the ultimate reality, which brings unity and meaning to all of creation and human existence. Naturally, then, if sense is to be made of the universe and human existence, some other ultimate reality must be proposed. The history of Western philosophical thought is really a history of a series of proposed God replacements. Consequently, secular worldviews make a God of reason, others the imagination, some matter, some government, some community, some economics. There has to be some ultimate reality through which we understand the nature of truth and human existence. Some unifying reality, which is the key to knowledge about life and existence. Naturally, every suggestion outside of God is woefully deficient and will always result in error and confusion and a host of societal and personal ills. I'll tell you right now, we're not going to get through this message, but I'll give you maybe three or four more minutes here. Most of the culture's suggested God replacements come about because some thinker has encountered some undeniable aspect of reality, undeniable legitimate truth regarding human existence, and simply elevates that to the level of God. Materialism or naturalism, all of the universe is made of matter, and matter only, they say. Well, it is true that the world is made of matter, but that's not to be elevated to the point of God, everything being explained only by naturalistic or materialistic, uh, uh, in materialistic or naturalistic ways, without ever entertaining the spiritual. That's materialism. Empiricism, the idea that all knowledge is derived from sense experience, in order for something to be true, it has to be able to be weighed or measured or felt or seen. That elevates the human senses to a position of God as final arbiter of truth and falsehood. This, again, excludes anything spiritual or soulish. The obvious problem there is that uh, we have all experienced situations where we're fooled by our own senses, right? Materialism, empiricism, rationalism. Maybe we want to move the, the locus of truth out of the realm of the material and put it in the intellect. We determined what is true through our human reasoning alone. This, again, excludes any truth that can only be known by divine revelation, such as what we just saw in Romans 1. It also assumes that human reasoning will always arrive at the truth. In rationalism, the human intellect becomes the God replacement. So whether it be materialism, nationalism, empiricism, rationalism, each one of these is guilty of elevating something to the position of God. But, again, look in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. In, in note where these idols come from. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Mankind is notorious for making idols out of the created world. In each of these philosophies, something in creation is absolutized and offered as the final arbiter of knowledge. 
Each takes one portion of creation and seizes upon it as the ultimate explainer. It's elevated far above its intended purpose, and a worldview is shaped around it. There's nothing, this is nothing more than idolatry, serving the creation rather than the creator. Some of these are, you think about the fact that, yes, the world is primarily matter, but matter is not all. What about thought? What about consciousness? What about the soul and mind? It may be true that the world has been created in a way to be perceived by our senses, but that's not all. What about thought? What about emotion? It may be true that we live in a world that can be understood through rational thought, but the human mind is not perfect and can be deceived. It may be true that culture and communities agree upon acceptable values and morality, but this does not necessitate the non-existence of universal absolute truth. It is true that society is largely driven by commerce and that there exist degrees of ability and competency, but this, this does not mean that ultimate meaning and value is determined by our place in a class structure, for instance. It may be true that in a sin-affected world, we can observe oppressors and the oppressed, but that reality does not provide a framework through which to interpret all of life, cultural Marxism, for instance. Some of these are good and right observations, but it's not all. Nothing in all of creation is fit to bear the philosophical weight of becoming uh, the lens through which we interpret all of creation and human existence. None of these things are to be adopted as the sole means through which we attain knowledge. Only God can be that source. Well, there's a serious repercussion. There are some serious repercussions of elevating something in the created order to the position of God. And that's that whatever that thing is will never supply a comprehensive, unifying vision of life without discounting something. All of life must be crammed into the box of that philosophy. Whatever does not fit into that box must be rejected. Nothing in all of creation can bear the weight of being a God replacement. Every idol-based worldview is guilty of that type of reductionism. They exchange the transcendent creator God for some aspect of the creation, which they then prop up as transcendent. Consequently, their entire worldview is flawed. They do not have the big picture. They do not have a God's eye view of life. Instead, they only see through the narrow lens of their chosen idol. That exchange has dire consequences. Consequences that go far beyond a limited worldview. Why? Because God is not silent in all of this. God is not silent in all of this. God does not sit idly by as his creature gives themselves over to other gods. He may intervene in dramatic fashion, bringing judgment to a nation, but more likely he allows the natural consequences of a delinquent worldview to be carried out. Understand that intellectual, emotional, and spiritual, and even physical fulfillment comes when we live and understand God's universe as he has designed it. On the other hand, and it looks like this is what we'll get to next week, when we fail to live in and understand God's universe as God designed it, we will naturally encounter intellectual confusion and emotional distress and spiritual emptiness and rampant immorality. Rejecting what God says about the source of genuine knowledge will result in foolishness. Rejecting what God says about morality will result in societal chaos and the debasement of human value. Rejecting what God says about the purpose and meaning about purpose and meaning will result in apathy and disillusionment. Rejecting what God says about the family will result in a generation of dysfunctional children. At every turn where mankind rejects God's design for life in this universe, there lies a potential 
natural consequence. God is the architect of life, and when we violate his design, we incur natural consequences. And so, we'll just read this text in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 19, and we're going to end with this for today. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they know God or knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. There comes a point of spiritual rebellion and rejection of God where God confirms or affirms a people in the hardness of their heart. If that's what you want, if you are determined and resolute in your rejection of me, then I will give you over to it. See what life and society is alike divorced from the divine. What does it look like? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That's talking about lesbianism. Verse 27. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. That's homosexuality. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased minds to do what ought not to be done. There's a host of ills that flow from this now. They're filled with, a man, with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree and those who practice such things that, that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. A culture which is wholly given over to its own sensual passions, so that you're violating God's very design for humankind, especially expressed, expressed in the sexual realm. And not only a culture that's given over to such sexual perversion, but a culture then which what does it say? Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So we erect a culture which smiles upon and celebrates and promotes all those who continue to practice such things. Do you feel like maybe the Word of God is relevant to our day? I think so. And all of this is a product of, first of all, rejecting the reality of God as clearly seen in all of creation, and for this all men are culpable. We have to stop here. This morning, if you're a Christian, all of this is to say there is a spiritual battle happening all around us in the arena of ideas. This is especially helpful considering that school is about to start. Your children are going to be uh, in the school system, which is, has been infiltrated with a wholly secular worldview, one which is based upon the rejection of God, and certainly the God of Scripture. And all that flows from that then that godlessness and the immorality that is always associated with it is saturating every arena of ideas, including the school system and the media and the government and so on. And so as Christians, we must have a commitment to the Scripture to understand or to uh, ensure that we have a worldview wholly shaped by the Word of God so that we can filter out error and embrace truth. 
Why? Because it has real consequences, real consequences to behavior, and uh, ultimately, at large, real consequences on society. We're going to have to end there, so let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and that you've given us everything that we need to be fully formed worshipers of you. Help us to not think that uh, our faith is only to be lived out within the walls of this place, but that you have equipped us with knowledge and understanding that can engage a culture which has wholly been given over to its debased mind uh, as a product of the rejection of you. And so help us to be alert, help us to be aware, understand that there's a spiritual battle happening all around us in the arena of ideas, that we are not those who are to accept every philosophy or every value uh, or every idea that comes about that we might think sounds reasonable, but instead all things must be filtered through the reality of your existence, who you are, the nature of your son, the nature of salvation, the biblically revealed uh, understanding of the nature of man. And so help us, protect us, help us to have a worldview fully shaped by your revelation. Help us uh, to teach this and to pass it on to our children as well and to be able to recognize areas in which uh, they may be exposed to the thinking of the world. So help us uh, to honor you with our minds. Help us to honor you with our philosophies and values and priorities. Uh, strengthen us as a church. We pray that we can be a people who are uh, fully immersed in your word uh, and have developed a take on life uh, which is dictated by your revelation. And Lord, we pray this morning for any who are here who are not yet Christians. I pray that they would understand uh, how perhaps they are just tossed back and forth by the philosophies of the world. Uh, They have been uh, and are being indoctrinated uh, with a way of thinking that starts from uh, a presupposition of rejecting you. Um, And so I pray that you would help them to see that there is a body of authoritative truth that flows from your transcendence and that they would come running to you And we know that what that would look like is an embrace of your son. So I pray that you'd work in the hearts of unbelievers this morning. Lead them to Christ. Lord, we thank you for this. We acknowledge that there's a lot of content this morning. We pray you'd help us us to uh, understand. And I pray you'd use it to help shape our thinking uh, when it comes to how we live this life uh, flowing from your word. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.